0: hi this is renee o'connor and you're listening to monsters madness and magic
1: all right folks justin here and before we get started i'd like to start off with a disclaimer this episode was recorded prior to the sag strike and includes no promotions of any new materials and monsters madness and magic stands with the union now that we've got that out of the way in this episode I chat with actor Renee O'Connor about The Evil Dead, The Stage, her theater company, House of Bards, Xena, Climbing Mount Kilimanjaro, Spirits, and more. As always, thank you for listening, and if you'd like to help the show grow, please leave us a review wherever you're listening to the podcast. Anyway, without further ado, here you go.
0: and Googles. this is your comrade the cryptkeeper here reporting dead from the sanctuary of the strange tonight's macabre myth is a fright-filled feature one overflowing with monsters madness
1: Renee, just so we have a platform to jump from here, take us back in time. You're a youngster. Are you a book reader, fort builder, troublemaker, or all the above?
0: (laughs) I had two different households that I lived in. My parents were divorced. They divorced quite early when I was about two years old. During the week, I would watch a lot of movies. My stepdad at the time had been gifted this illegal catalog of bootlegged (laughs) movies from the 70s. And I knew at the time something was a little off, but I was too young to really ask the right questions. But we had shelves of movies all from up until all the 60s and 70s, up until maybe like late 1970s. And so I just put in one VHS movie (laughs) after another. And... I discovered this entire world of uh, imagination and storytelling. On the weekends, when I was with my father, he would take us out water skiing and, you know, my brother and I would build forts and I would try to, you know, practice my future Xena warrior princess tactics on him and failed miserably most of the time.
1: (laughs) So when you do think back to formative films and TV shows, what comes to your mind initially?
0: Well, what's pretty ironic is that I used to watch all of Sam Raimi's films, who ended up being the executive producer on Hercules and Xena. I immediately was drawn to his sense of humor and the unusual way he took the camera and just twisted the perspective. And I just kept watching them over and over again. And then, of course, Bruce Campbell was completely over the top and hilarious, which later on in my life, when I started acting, I, 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 think he might have influenced my style a little bit mm.
1: so you're an evil dead fan
0: i'm a huge evil dead fan wow. the original evil dead fan you know army of darkness love no, army
1: Green. of darkness
0: they're all wonderful people as well sam rob and bruce are as incredible human beings as they are talents on screen
1: bruce was in a few episodes of xena am i right
0: Oh, yes, they try to pull each other together wherever possible and yeah. bring each other, fortunately, into <laughs> each other's, into Rob's projects, I should say, Rob and Sam's projects. But anyway, yes, uh, Bruce came over and he played, oh my gosh, what was his name? He was, I just remember he wore this amazing green <laughs> leather suit. <laughs> He's going to kill me. I forgot his name. I don't remember his name. I'm sorry. But anyway, he came over all the time. And he was like an Errol Flynn type of character where he always had something snarky to say. And he would try to solve all the problems from a typical male perspective that really couldn't help us too much, you know. And so he always brought up a bit of comedy to the episodes. He's delightful. Again, someone that I really miss working with.
1: Did you let them know that you were a huge Evil Dead fan when you guys met?
0: I think it might've come up at some point where I um, mentioned it to maybe Lucy, Rob, Bruce, or Ted Raimi. One of them definitely heard that I watched the movies when I was younger. I think I told Rob the most. I probably repeated myself with him a little bit.
1: (laughs) So do you recall the very first movie that you saw in theaters?
0: I do, I remember being very young and going into the theater to see the sound of music. And it actually had an intermission where we had to stop and go out, use the restroom, have refreshments and then come back in. But I was greatly influenced by the world they created. Julie Andrews, her open heart and her innocence, her talent just kind of captured my imagination and my mind. And so then I think I tried to sing along to the albums whenever possible. (laughs) (laughs) Anyway, I love epics. I love telling epic stories. And so um, I'm sure that seeing that movie in the theater on such a grand scale was a pivotal time in my life.
1: It's a good first movie. The most common one that I get is Bambi. So that's a bit more traumatic. It's probably good you didn't see that one first.
0: I'm sure I watched a bootleg copy. I mean, come on.
1: (laughs) The bootleg Bambi. Maybe they didn't show that part in the bootleg. So, Renee, were either of your parents, were they artistically inclined or were they involved in the business maybe?
0: Not at all. No, Mm -hmm. I grew up in a small suburb outside of Houston, Texas, and I don't recall any artistic Mm -hmm. endeavors in our house at all. There really wasn't a sense of singing unless I was putting on, you know, Sound of Music vinyl. There was music played, but it wasn't any particular instrument. So I did not walk away from my childhood thinking that I was encouraged to pursue a legacy of art from my family at all. What I did find though, is that there was a quality of fearlessness that Mm -hmm. I captured at a very young age that then enhanced my natural driven personality to go for my dream, which was to act. I mean, that sounds crazy in my world, (laughs) you know, in Katy, Texas. People don't act, you know, for a living. I would say most everyone tried to discourage me from pursuing it, with the exception of a few conversations with my mother.
1: This kind of segues perfectly into my next question. What scared you as a kid?
0: Because I had like different households, I ended up, unfortunately, in my formative years for about 16 years with the classic Archetype of the evil stepfather. <sighs> yeah. Yeah, I know it's it's it is so funny I look back going oh, okay. Well, it makes sense now. I became a warrior on television You know, I was gonna write the wrongs of the world But because of that there was always a quality in my life of knowing that there was truly like the boogeyman <laughs> yeah. Was literally around so I became very hyper vigilant aware of my moves when I could be in a, a dangerous situation and also really understanding the sense of what is right and what is wrong as a principle that became a core value for me that I've you know I've had my ups and downs throughout my life but I've I found that very early on as a young kid you know what scared me was like that people can do awful things but at the same time I've overcome it and I know what I have inside of me is really strong and powerful in my own way that I'm not I, I don't feel like a victim at all
1: right Well said. So do you have a Eureka moment or light bulb moment that you can pinpoint where your own interest in the arts arose, maybe a play, a performance or something like that?
0: Yes, I was very young, probably in middle school, and I had been begging my mother to let me take an acting class because I wanted to pursue this for a living. She signed me up for this youth program at the Alley Theater in Houston, Texas, which was probably a good two hour drive from where I lived at the time. And for maybe three or four years, I studied with professional actors through their youth program. And we would put on productions at this amazing theater in downtown Houston. But there was one production where I remember discovering the ability to make people laugh and mm. to bring over the top characters to life. Again, probably Bruce Campbell. You know? <laughs> it's brilliant. But I played this uh, really silly character. It was like a gypsy. It was called Madame Ices. And she just went around the room. It was all scripted and had this comedic story of telling people's future. Well, this was important because my teacher at the time, I feel like I was also emulating her Presence, But she became a a mentor to me throughout the rest of my high school years. She helped me audition, become enrolled in the high school for performing and visual arts in Houston, Texas. And she helped me discover Shakespeare, where I was studying and preparing for an understudy role as Miranda in The Tempest at um, another amazing theater in Houston. So she really just kind of pulled me along and i remember she told my mother that she enjoyed working with me because i was like a sponge because i wanted to know everything that she knew and i wanted to pour myself into this this magical world of storytelling and make believe
1: your very first time on stage acting did it go off without a hitch did you know your pants fall (laughs) down or anything
0: Because I went to the high school for performing in visual arts, I was in the theater department, but a lot of my friends were in the dance department. And they were all auditioning for the local Six Flags Amusement Parks show where they could be paid, you know, Mm. as 17-year-olds. So I thought it would be a great idea if I auditioned as well. And I went along and I, I actually was cast in this Halloween Fright Night type zombie musical Magic production cool. Yeah, it was pretty cool. And so I was but I wasn't the lead actress. I was the I mean the lead dancer I was the understudy to the lead demon dancing woman, you know (laughs) And in the meantime, I they put like a zombie mask over my head and I went around Dancing like I was in thriller, but but my first opportunity to actually take her spot and dance in her role didn't turn out very well at all. They have this gag where the demon woman is impaled by a sword so that the hero gets to win the girl and everything works out well. Well, there is this belt that they would latch onto us on our waist, or abdomen, and it was the tip of a sword that then they would push down and collapse and lock off mm. under this bodysuit, right? Well, I went out and I'm pirouetting Parawetting across the stage with the fury and I slip and I fall and I slide about 20 feet and then this sword pops out so that the so I'm sitting there and I suddenly have this very unusual metal piece that's just coming straight out of my abdomen and I stand up and I don't I don't know that it has I did not know it had happened yet but this thousand seat room full of people just started laughing and it's because i ruined the gag so i had to turn around and discreetly try to push it back in lock it off fall under the spell of the hero magician and then they carried me over to the base of the sword and proceeded to impale me as i let the little piece slip again so that was that 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 did not go well
1: was that your only time in that role no
0: thank goodness okay (laughs) cool thank goodness i know all my friends came to see it right and they were just like oh renee that was a piece of your piece of work but fortunately the next year i was cast as the same dancer so i had the entire year to make it right
1: at least you reconciled it (laughs) so uh, renee (laughs) when it comes to the stage do you have a do you have a handful of roles that you hold closer to your heart than others maybe ones that are really important to you
0: I've been very fortunate that after Zena finished, I moved back to America and I started a family. And it's honestly was the most important, significant way I could spend my years is to be a great mother. So that was my focus. And while I was spending time raising my son, Miles, and my daughter, Iris, I was fortunate to find theater productions around my area where i could dabble into community theater where they were at times they were possibly cast alongside me so some of my favorite memories are with my family i remember playing um mrs brill the scottish annoying maid in annie in warbucks's mansion while my daughter played annie and my husband wow. played bucks you know and my son played Roberts and i so My son and I just had a great time creating as much stick as possible. And then another time I was working, It was with the same company, I was playing Titania in Shakespeare's A Midsummer Night's Dream and my daughter played Puck and my son played Benvolio. And then eventually someone caught wind that I was playing in theater (laughs) whenever I could. I was pulled over to Florida to work with a professional Shakespeare company as the nurse in um, Romeo and Juliet. And that was an incredible experience because one thing led to another where My son was cast as Romeo in his first professional opportunity. It was such an incredible experience because not only was I performing in this massive amphitheater, but alongside my own experience, I was able to watch my son and witness his growth. This incredible company.
1: So your children had a natural interest in acting as well.
0: (laughs) Well, They do. They do. Yes. It definitely started with this community theater company where they would put on incredible productions with a live orchestra and costumes and sets and a 1500 seat theater so that the children were brought along with the adults and were given the gift of performing in the production as a learning experience. That's really cool.
1: Does your approach as an actor differ depending on whether you're on stage or on screen?
0: The essence of my approach does not change at all. I I feel that the only difference is that in the theater, there's there's a larger space to contain. And so a lot of the intentions are just pulled through the block the entire street you know yeah kind of move beyond the building it's the same experience i love theater because you literally can feel what the audience is experiencing it's very tangible and so when you're in a larger theater you just have to be aware that the nuances are maybe not picked up by the the 800 the guys in the very back yeah. <laughs> but it's the same approach really
1: Renee, this is something I like to ask all actors I speak with, because, you know, to the general public, you know, non-actors like myself, method acting is a term that gets thrown around and sort of become muddled. And I find most actors have their own specific methods anyway, so... What's your method?
0: <laughs> yes. I remember being an, a young actor working professionally before I, I booked a Xena and utilizing all the tools that I had collected from my studio lessons in Los Angeles. And so I remember specifically being on a television movie with Ellen Bernstein, which is amazing, and practicing my method acting techniques. <laughs> it was awful. We were in North Carolina and we are filming a... This TV movie called Follow the River about these young ladies who were kidnapped by a true story by Native Americans. Anyway, they had been kidnapped. And so I remember whenever we would break for lunch, I insisted on staying in my own little, you know, area where I was tied to the pole, you know, (laughs) down the river, right? You know, I couldn't get up to go eat. I don't do that anymore. I I became wiser. (laughs) (laughs) I trust myself more.
1: So I'm not asking you to name names or anything like that, but have you ever worked with someone that takes that a little bit too far?
0: Hmm. I've heard wonderful stories, uh, but no, not really. It's interesting though because I. I remember when I was working on a television movie for Hercules, the legendary journeys before it became a television show that Kevin Sorbo's father was played by Anthony Quinn. And so Anthony Quinn came and I was Hercules's at the time, one of his many sidekicks. I fortunately had several days to work with Mr. Quinn and <laughs> he came to set and he had all of his lines written on poster boards that were held up by the crew and he would just Talk to us and then glance at the poster boards to remind him of his lines. But it was an interesting mix of live theater with a teleprompter, you know? Yeah, yeah. It took me a long time to ever understand why. Why would he you know, I'm so so young and naive, but like why would he do that? That just seems crazy to me. It's just a just the quality of experience and of life experiences that just permeates through your roles that if you Tend to, to study it every moment, then you're going to lose just the essence of vitality that comes across. I definitely have my techniques that I use because I need them as a foundation. But then I def, but now I'm I move more into just being present with people.
1: While we're on the subject of theater, what was the catalyst for you starting your own theater company, The House of Bards?
0: Well. Throughout these years, while I've been in Los Angeles and raising my children, I've had this strong creative urge to tell stories. And so I I was dabbling in sketch comedy web series at one point, and then I moved on to short films, (laughs) and then I moved on to producing a couple films, and I wasn't finding the sense of achievement that I needed creatively. And what I realized later is that with theater, I can put my attention onto a project for a short amount of time and bring it to life in a very creative way without all the parameters that come with working in the film industry because you have to tell the story right now and then you strike it and then you move on and you start anew i really love that i mean it's i found my place for pursuing my storytelling and stretching myself as an artist it's the place i can go to and and be challenged
1: how often do you guys put on productions
0: well, it's a newer company. It started in 2019, just before the pandemic shut us down. Yeah. So, yeah. Um, the goal was to be producing three shows a year, very nice quality shows. They're highly produced. It's all professional. With I mean, with professional actors. I'm at the point now where we're at two productions a year. One is classical Shakespeare, and trying to find a fresh way to bring it into our world and remind people that Shakespeare's meant to be experienced, more so than read in the classroom. I've been trying to, to lock into the curriculums with different teachers, in our community and encourage them to bring their students to our shows. And that's been wonderful. So in addition to Shakespeare, then the other goal is to produce adaptations of classical novels and put them on the stage. So at some point, I'm sure I'll be trying to do like crime and punishment. (laughs)
1: Mm. (laughs) <laughs>
0: Something crazy. Like, but no, I have a list of books that I would love to see on the stage.
1: Is your family still working with you in the theater?
0: Uh, no, my son is studying acting in New Zealand. Oh, nice. Um, my daughter is a senior in high school, and she's uh, working with all the different local community theater companies in her high school department, theater department. It's really just me and my family now. My husband moved, pushed acting to the side and is just sort of focused on writing and other things that are more satisfying. I'm the one in the family, at least, that is pushing House of Bards up the hill.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Is it fair to say at this point in your career that theater is your preference?
0: I want to do it all. I really Mm. do. I mean, I I would love to be able to to work in television again, I you know I definitely took a break to raise my family, and now what's available there is just mind blowing. The stories are incredible on television. The acting is top notch, and honestly, it wasn't like that when I was when I was leaving television, you know, to raise right. my kids. So I I would love to jump into that experience and be in um, involved in some sort of a television program that was. Uh, had told a a riveting story and then also continue to grow the theater company because it's where i really don't have to answer to a studio and i can practice captivating people in the live experience and take them on a journey that is important to create empathy compassion
1: right and I had a I asked James Marsters the same question because he loves theater as well and he said an answer that I really like is of course everyone wants to work in t- television you know the money's nice but as an actor when you're on stage and in theater you're working with probably some of the best stories that have ever been written that by the best writers that have ever lived and it's just really hard to touch that spark <laughs>
0: I I just finished uh, producing and directing George Orwell's 1984. Mm, There you go. (laughs) And it was honestly probably the most challenging material I've ever approached. And I wasn't acting, but I had to understand the material with such depth before we even hit the theater venue. It was really challenging because it was so difficult. It was was so uh, oppressive. And so I tried to take all these feelings that are coming from this dark novel and find a way to facilitate an experience where the audience could know what Winston is going through. So I wanted them to walk away and have a better conversation about issues that are really relevant to us as a a country right now.
1: Most definitely. Uh, So Renee, how did the eventual transition from stage to screen happen for you?
0: I don't know. (laughs) <laughs> I guess, well, really, I, because I started off in a performing arts high school where we were putting on theater productions and my background with Sherry Brogdon, my teacher, yet there was always a, a passion for theater. I did move to California with an intention of working in television and film. It was just the intention. This was the right city to find the opportunities. And then after Zena finished, again, when I wanted to raise my family, theater is just, it's been my best friend
1: (laughs) (laughs) you just mentioned Xena Renee how did that opportunity come about was it a typical audition right place right time situation
0: I was auditioning for the Hercules television movie first. And so the the way it happened back in the early 90s is they would have these action blocks where it was Hercules for two hours and he had five different movies and they were designed by Universal to be seen on Universal television. So I was auditioning for his sidekick at the time and I remember walking into the room and Rob Tapper's like, oh, I know you, you're, you're, you're the log girl. <laughs> like what? You're the log girl. <laughs> it's like, oh, I don't know what that what do you mean you know and he had just watched this other television movie where i was playing this girl that was in the flood a flood in texas that washed through and this giant log came flying out of nowhere and hit me in this river and i had this stunt or i had to go underwater you know and then like (laughs) grab all the trees as i'm flying down the river so he he just found that so entertaining
1: (laughs) it was memorable apparently (laughs)
0: <laughs> a the mom girl walks in, like, "No, oh, you're alive, you know. So we hit it off pretty quickly. The rest is history. That's
1: it. I gotcha. <laughs> I wanted to ask you about climbing Mount Kilimanjaro.
0: Oh, gosh. That was one of the best uh, memories of my life. I remember there was a point, it was called Gilman's Point, where my mother and I had just hiked up this very steep slope of gravel, in the middle of the night with uh, headlights on and so it's just a series of these little lights going all the way up and you would follow the light it was discouraging because you would take two steps and you'd fall back one you would take another two and you just had to be patient and determined to make it well we were the last ones to reach this point of Gilman's Point. And we sat there and we watched the sunrise over Africa. It was literally the roof oh, wow. of Africa. And it was the most potent color I've ever seen in my life. It was almost blinding, profound. What happened at the time is my mother was um, suffering from altitude sickness and she could not continue all the way to the very top of Kilimanjaro. She needed to stay there and, and start her descent. And she we had this moment out of a movie it's like renee no you go without me no mom i can't you know? <laughs> no no but you must no I, really, I can't you know and we kept going on and on and you know basically there's a very limited amount of time where you can hit the top of africa because the winds are too high and you can't be there so i was running out of time while we we're arguing whether or not i was going to keep going <laughs> and she was right moms are right i did need to go i need i kept I just packed it up and started off on my own. You know, she was okay. We had this guide to, that took her back down to the tents. And on my last ascent up to the top, I just remember um, taking a lot of breaks and watching people from different countries pass me by, you know, like <laughs> Italians would come, and, you know, and then the people from Israel would come and then they would stop at. I would pass them and it was just this really surreal experience of seeing people in this heightened moment in their lives. And there were literally just drops on either side that would go into these um like a dormant volcano. So it, it wasn't like a cliff. It was a cliff. But you know,
1: close it wasn't enough.
0: Like, it was it was it was, it was yeah, I was a long way down. <laughs> that was on one side and eventually on the other side we I started to approach these amazing glaciers and that's the white part that you see in the pictures of Kilimanjaro but it was just like skyscrapers of clay, of, of ice and that was another world. So I none of it was really harrowing. I remember getting to the top I was the very last one to sign the book and the winds were we're picking up and they said we can't stay you have to go so I basically just had to take this moment and take a snapshot in my mind and start my way down as quickly as possible but it, Very was, cool. it was a challenge
1: is that the only mountain you've climbed
0: yes the, I think that'll be it though now <laughs> <laughs> I mean, there was a moment where I thought oh this is just the beginning but not anymore no <laughs> I, I want I'd like to be around for my family yeah
1: that, that's a big one though. you know have to do much awesome. after that so, Renee, at what point did you realize yourself just how popular Xena was?
0: I was uh, it was early on, I think it was like 1997, literally two years into the show, when Lucy went on a press tour in America while I was staying back in New Zealand enjoying our break. <laughs> and when she returned, she was just like, Oh, Ren, you know, you're not going to believe all the people, all the people she met. And it's just, People were like t- trying to take her photo wherever she went, and she she said it was just it was a madhouse, you know. And she had story after story of people knowing her, you know, knowing Xena. and all of these articles came out at the same time. A- about the show being a a successful spinoff. And I I think that's when I really started to have an understanding that we were popular, but I did try to stay in New Zealand as much as possible during the show, or I would take trips from New Zealand to different places to travel as much as possible. So that's when I went to Africa and I went to Indonesia, Australia, I went to Great, Great Barrier Reef. I just tried to open up my life experience. And I tried to stay out of the media As much as possible, because I really just wasn't very interested, and I wasn't Zena, you know, I really wasn't worried about it, (laughs) you know, and so I felt like I had the best of both worlds. I could I could watch Lucy and at the same time carry on living the dream. So that was pretty cool. And then of course the Zena convention started, and that's where it was literally a madhouse. Where was thousands and thousands of people in one room, and, and you're just kind of amazed that they're, they're there.
1: <laughs> so all you guys pretty much just lived in New Zealand throughout the whole production of Xena?
0: Lucy's from New Zealand. She lived there. I was the only American that lived there permanently mm. to be on the show. And then we had our guests, such as Ted Raimi and Alex, that would come and go based on their needs. Based on the needs of the productions and the required role, required commitment. Sorry, but then there was Kevin Smith, and Kevin Smith was also a New Zealander, and he played Aries. He lived there all the time, and we we brought him on as much as possible.
1: Renee, out of all your roles, be it you know stage, screen, whatever, which would you consider the most challenging? Is there one you've lost sleep over?
0: I do think I lose a little bit of sleep over all of them. That I want to make sure I'm prepared if the role has. You know if it's a dramatic role that there's definitely a quality of life that feels embodied that i would wish i didn't have to carry but i i do know that it's i'm aware of its effect so it will pop up in dreams you know but then it's actually quite fortunate because i might come up with a little treasure of, of character flaw that i hadn't thought of so i'll just utilize everything and put it into the role i always wondered why did i choose these characters that are- <laughs> Like, why would she want to go through this, you know? But anyway, but, but then with the comedic ones, you just, you know, there's so much uh, that you can't plan that, that then might keep me up at night a little bit because um, a lot of that is all about, you know, using your body and your voice attributes that you're endowing on the character so all that you know could keep me up as you could tell
1: <laughs> <laughs> so when you're preparing for a character just how far do you go with stuff like maybe i don't know some people make a journal or fill out the back maybe stuff that won't actually make it on stage or screen but just help you with the character
0: yeah i've i've been journaling for years for my character I definitely have gone the route of looking for the backstory and writing out all these scenarios. Right now what I tend to use are more of an archetype study overall, where I try to find aspects of the character that I would not normally choose so I can find something that's a little outside the box and kinda of keeps it interesting. And that's where I'm where my attention is being drawn and it's the most entertaining. <laughs> <laughs>
1: right <laughs> so just got a few more here for you right then i'll cut you loose up and keep you all afternoon what is the best acting advice you've received and who gave it to you
0: oh gosh i you know it's so funny because i think the person that i that i'm always asking acting questions would be michael hurst michael hurst played um hercules's i mean kevin Sorbo's sidekick
1: mm, yeah michael hurst yeah gotcha. gotcha.
0: He's this incredible, a uh, knowledgeable actor, and he's truly one of the New Zealand's finest actors. Uh, and he's quite—he's classically trained.
1: I was going to say, I think he's active in the stage, if I'm not mistaken. Oh, Very he's,
0: he's always right now. He's playing King Lear. Yeah. So yeah.
1: yeah.
0: <laughs> you know, um, and so yeah, but you know, it's interesting because I every time I'm around him, I just try to—I pick his brain, and he, he can start. Any conversation with the soliloquy out of Hamlet, you know, (laughs) with the drop of a hat. And he's so passionate. And so it's what comes from Michael is he doesn't really teach technique, but he he just I think he instills a sense of uh, confidence in your intuition and your instinct and to not overthink it. You know, that there are certain things like just don't be stuck in the rules of what's the appropriate way, say, to to perform Shakespeare you know think just challenge yourself think outside the box and and I I definitely in my mind look to Michael Hurst quite often when I'm trying to get out of my own head and stop taking everything so seriously you know you can't really be a good student with Shakespeare you just need to bring it to life bring the story to life
1: well so good advice so uh, this is something I like to ask everyone just because you never know what they're gonna say Uh. I've had some crazy answers to this question. (laughs) 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 Have you ever had an experience you would consider supernatural or paranormal?
0: Yes. I was visiting New Zealand a long time ago, and I had my son with me, and he was probably about four years old. And I was staying in Lucy's house while she was out of town. I had been there for a few days, and I was packing up to leave. I knew I wasn't alone because there was this... Little living room that she has, and this wooden rocking chair. <laughs> I swear it's out of one of Rob's films, right? <laughs> it's a wooden rocking chair. And my son was playing kind of near the television with his toys, and the chair was rocking. And I looked over, and I really thought, really, come on, I mean, come on, really, I'm, I'm almost, I'm leaving, you know. Let me, <laughs> let me just go now. But it was, it was something, and. I, there wasn't any kind of feeling around it, except I was uncomfortable, that's for sure. I was uncomfortable right. that it happened. It yeah. wasn't a feeling like anything wrong or dangerous, I should say, but that was unusual.
1: So you're saying and Zena's house is
0: haunted. Yeah, Zena's. <laughs> I Oh, I was think her house is haunted. She's like, oh, Ryan, I don't know. <laughs> Actually, you know, Lucy's very. She's just open-minded. I mean, you know, the entire country. It's Maori yeah, land. Yeah, Ma- Maori, yeah. Yeah, the Maoris, and I mean, even when we were working on Xena, there were certain places that we could, where we couldn't step on the land to start filming until we were blessed by the tribe that represented that space. Of course, they didn't own it most of the time because of the, you know, the Europeans taking over. The land and rights, but there was always a quality of a ceremony of knowing that you're stepping on footsteps of your ancestors. So it wouldn't be odd at all if, if yeah, if a chair was rocking in Lucy Dallas,
1: <laughs> right? She might know who it was. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so Renee, have you seen any good movies lately?
0: I've seen any good movies. Hmm, not really. Isn't that awful? Not really. No. Um, I, sh- sh- no. I do see a lot of theater. I see a lot of theater. I I try to see as much theater as possible. I saw an incredible production of Tina Turner Mm. a few nights ago. It's a biopic of, you know, her life and boy, this young actress embodied the essence of Tina Turner with her, her courage and her vocal strength and her passion. I was just, I was really moved, you know? And because it reminds you of who Tina Turner is, what she represents to a lot of women, she just defied all odds. But so that was incredible. Um, I saw an incredible production of A Little Night Music at the Pasadena Playhouse. Mm. That was beautiful. Gosh, I mean, stunning vocal talent again for a a musical that I've never seen before. So mostly I'm trying to get out and see, like tonight I'm going to go see A Twelfth Night with Shakespeare by the Sea. So I've just, wow. I just, I move around. A lot of good <laughs> stuff
1: going on out there.
2: No, <laughs>
1: there <it> really is. <laughs> well, Renee, just to put a bow on everything here, why don't you tell folks what you have on the horizon and where they can find the House of Bards.
0: Thank you. Um, the House of Bards will have another production in April of 2024, I'm still deciding on whether it's going to be a Shakespeare production or a version of Moby Dick to oh. be cool. So yeah, I have I have a lot to think about. Um, that's really where I'll be placing my attention at the moment. I'm going to direct a musical of Matilda for this company called Encore, which is actually the community theater company I was talking about. I'll be directing for them this fall, which will be fantastic. And then I am actually producing a podcast for my parents about the Armadillo World Headquarters, which was a venue in Austin, Texas in the 70s, where a lot of musicians would come through and play. Mm As they were developing their um musical style what was so unique about it is that it brought in hippies and cowboys and put them all together in one room and everyone got along and so we're trying to interview people that played at the armadillo mm. to to try to unite and find a connection of experience that um we can just hold on to. Maybe it'll help inform us how to treat each other better. Maybe not. Maybe it'll just be great stories, but I'm starting that as well.
1: Do you have a website for the a company or anything like that?
0: It will be, well, my, uh, it's a- awhq.com, armadilloworldheadquarters.com. So we're working on all of that. I would say that we'll be producing it for the better part of six to eight months before mm. we actually launch it i believe the launch date is supposed to be february of 2024 so we'll be putting a lot together gotcha yeah and then the um, house of bards is um house of bards.org i believe yeah, I i'll put it, it i'll put it in the description <laughs> make sure <Thank> <laughs> well
1: renee uh well renee thank you again oh, it's hi. been a big pleasure talking to you a huge fan
0: Thank you so much! Congratulations on all your successes. This is wonderful.
1: Thank you. I'll uh, send a link to Ferguson when I get it posted and all that good stuff. Okay,
0: I appreciate it. All
1: right, all right. have a good rest of your day.
0: Oh, you're, I know what you're doing. It's a lot of work. It's great. Uh, yeah.
1: <laughs> Thank you. <laughs>
0: Bye-bye. All right. you. Bye bye.
1: All right, folks, that's a wrap. I hope you enjoyed that chat with Renee. As always, thanks for listening, and we'll see you back next time.
0: Monsters, madness, and magic.
2: <laughs> Welcome to the night. You think you know Night Demon? Then the Night Demon Heavy Metal Podcast is for you. Step into the darkness as we peel back the curtain to give you an unprecedented, all access look into the mind and the heart of the demon. All with in depth commentary by the band and the people who were there for the writing and recording process. This is a gold mine, a treasure trove of all things Night Demon. Head over to nightdemon.net or wherever you listen to podcasts.